Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 3 as we study the mystery. Ephesians chapter 3. We began studying this great chapter last week. We only covered one verse because it was going to be difficult to, I felt like, to cover the whole, uh, the whole of verses 1 through 13. And I wanted to do 2 through 13 tonight, and that's not going to work out either. There's just, there's just too, much really wonderful, uh, too many wonderful things here. So we're going to have to break it down into three classes, it looks like. Verse 1, though, read this way. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, in most of your Bibles, there should be a dash or something after that word Gentiles. And then it's going to pick up again in verse 14. If you let your eyes glance down to verse 14, you see that verse 3 started for this reason. Verse 14 starts exactly the same way, same Greek term and everything. What we have between verses 2 and verse 13, or from verse 2 to verse 13, is a parenthetical statement. It's not a rabbit trail, but it's a divinely inspired parenthetical statement. So the, the chapter begins for this reason. That particular phrase refers back to the preceding discussion on the individual's corporate position in the body of Christ also known as the church. So it refers back to chapter 2. Not only the last part, but the first part. And then really, if we wanted to be a little more specific, it, it probably refers even back to what we had in chapter 1. So when Paul begins chapter 3, which is still in the doctrinal section of the book, he's referring back to the first two chapters and, and to make a point about the mystery. He's going to have a parenthetical statement with regard to this concept of mystery, and then he's going to go into a prayer. So... Um, Paul uses this phrase, I, Paul, six times in his writing. Um, and on all but one occasion, it's in a friendly sense. There's one occasion in his second letter to the Corinthians that doesn't appear to be so friendly. But at least on all the other occasions, I, when he says, I, Paul, he's using it in a friendly sense. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter one, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is explaining that he is suffering. He is currently suffering Right now, he's in prison. He's suffering on their behalf. But there's more to it than that. Oh, there's so much more to it than that. He's suffering for the sake of the Gentiles, but he is where he is because of his commitment to serve Jesus Christ. So Paul makes this crystal clear when he says he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. I might think that Paul was the prisoner of the Romans right now. You might also can make a case that Paul is the prisoner of the Jews right now, because they're the ones that put the Romans up to this whole thing way back. We studied that in the book of Acts. But Paul doesn't see it that way. Paul realizes that, yes, and this is what we have to get, because sometimes we can misapply this, and I've heard it misapplied in kind of a silly way sometimes. Yes, the Jews were wrong. Yes, the Romans were wrong. But Paul's there because Christ said, okay. So Paul's not going to get real upset with the Jews. And he's not real upset with the Romans. Most of us would be. That's human nature. I probably would be upset with the more immediate cause. But the ultimate cause is that that's where God wanted him. You see, sometimes people are going to cheat you. Sometimes people are going to do you wrong. Sometimes you're going to say bad things about you. And you're not going to like that at all. And I don't like it either. But we are where we are because Christ allowed us to be there. That's part of this definition of providence that we gave you before. We are where we are because Christ ultimately allowed it. Now, it doesn't mean that we ought to get mad at God, but we just need to realize that there's no point 
and getting upset with this person or that person. Yes, they wronged you, and yes, there may be consequences to them wronging you. That's what I'm trying to say. If somebody wrongs you and wrongs you and wrongs you, well, then you, you would be wise to avoid that person, to avoid doing any more business with them. If it's a boyfriend and a girlfriend, marry somebody else. You know, it doesn't mean you have to keep going back for more and more trouble, but realize that we ultimately are where we are because Christ said, okay, it's all right that that happens to him. So we need to always remember that. Paul was, was exhibiting incredible maturity here. I mean, just absolutely incredible maturity when he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. I don't know that I could have done that. But Paul is in prison because of the sovereignty of God. That's where Paul, that's where God chose for Paul to be at this particular time in his ministry. Now, if we look back upon what happened, we might can say, you know, I can see why Paul would be in prison at this time. Because he was awfully busy before this time, before now. He's running in a hundred different directions. It looks to me kind of like God set him aside for just a little while, put him under house arrest, and he wrote four phenomenal letters. At least three of the four are some of the favorite letters of the church, and very impactful letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. So he had at least a little time to do that. He also was effective when he was in Rome in ministering to some of the members of Caesar's household. So even, even the household of the emperor received the gospel because Paul had been placed in prison in Rome. So there was good that came out of it, but I really doubt that even Paul could see that at the time. You know, that's the way it is. Most of the time, until we take a step back, and that step back may have to be a decade or two or three decades later, before we can start getting a bird's eye view of why God might have allowed that to happen. I've had things like that, haven't you? Where I mean, there, there were times early on in my life I prayed fervently for things to happen that, by the way, were very reasonable. They were not unspiritual at all. They weren't sinful at all. And then God said no. And I would scratch my head and say, why in the world would you not allow that to happen? Now, looking back on it, I can certainly see. I wouldn't be standing in front of you here today, at least I don't think I would be, if some of the things that I had prayed fervently for that were reasonable things, that were non-sinful things, and that they weren't immoral at all, but if he would have let those happen, I wouldn't be here today. Now, you can probably think of dozens of examples yourself that you wouldn't be where you are today if God would have allowed some of the things that you yourself have prayed for, too. So we have to trust the sovereignty of God. And since we know that God has all the facts, and we only have a very small sliver of the facts, and we know that God loves us, each one of us, more than anybody you can think of, times infinity, <laughs> He loves you that much. He has all the facts and he cares about you and he's also omnipotent and he can do whatever he wants to do anytime he wants to do it. I have to trust that he's got me where I am. He's got you where you are in whatever particular circumstance because that's where he wants you at that time. Yes, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. So what about our own bad decisions? He factors that in there too. And by the way, we all have them. Everybody in this room has made bad decisions. I would, I would just guess you probably made at least one today. Well, you know, I don't know how bad of a decision, I don't know how critical of a decision that it, it was. I hope it wasn't too bad, but, but most of us make bad decisions on a fairly regular basis. And I'm trying to keep it to a minimum, but we make them a lot more frequently than we want to make them. But the bottom line is this. Are the Romans and the Jews culpable for Paul being in prison? You bet they are. And God will take care of that. But the reason Paul is in prison ultimately is because of God's decision. Now, having broken off the sentence in the middle of verse 1, Paul then is going to begin a long sentence 
that's not going to end until verse 13. You remember there's eight such sentences in this letter to the Ephesians. Eight of these real long sentences that, that just give expositors fits because of, of trying to work through the structure of some of these things. But there's going to be now another one of those long sentences between chapter, chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 13. In verses 2 through 6, we'll have an explanation of the mystery. That's our subject for tonight. An explanation of this concept of the mystery. And then in verses 7 through 13, Paul's, making, Paul's ministry of making known the mystery to the Gentiles. Now in chapter 2, or chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, we have it broken down into three parts. First, Paul's responsibility to dispense the mystery. Second, in verses 3 through 5, when and to whom it was revealed. And then finally, finally, in verse 6, we have uh, the content of the mystery. Now, you know, when I think of the idea of mystery, I'm probably like you, or, or we're probably on the same page. I think of Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, uh, the, you know, the, the really neat movies, I think of Russell Crowe and Michael Douglas, who seems to be playing a really great villain in the last part of his life in many of these films. Um, I think of authors like John Sanford, who's one of my favorite mystery kind of police writers, um, and Lucas Davenport, who's the hero, hero of that, um, uh, Virgil Flowers, pe- people like that. That's what I think, like who done it? You're trying to figure out, there's a mystery to this, and we're trying to figure out, we're trying to solve the mystery, like a police type of thing, detective stories, and, and I love those kind of things. That's what most of us think about when we think of mystery. But that's not what Paul is speaking about when he speaks of the idea of the mystery. So we'll talk tonight about what is this mystery? Especially the mystery as he relates to as it relates to what he's writing in the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians. So let's go over these verses, verses two through six, as we have time remaining tonight, and let's let's consider this this exciting concept because this mystery, while not an Agatha Christie or a Sherlock Holmes or a Michael Douglas movie or anything like that or a John Sanford novel, this mystery is every bit as phenomenal. It's just a different kind of mystery, as we'll see in just a moment. So in verse 2, when we, when we break into this parenthetical statement, Paul says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. If indeed you have heard, actually this is a conditional clause or a conditional sentence in the Greek language, which... which uh, which means there's an if concept to it. But it's, it's, it's one of those kind of ifs that could be translated surely. The implication here is that they have indeed heard. They have indeed heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Uh, one, one writer put it this way, the idea being, at any rate, if you have heard, and I know you have. If you have heard, and I know you have. You wonder, wonder why Paul could be so sure that they had heard of the stewardship or the dispensation or the administration of God's grace. How could they have possibly heard that and Paul have been so sure that they had heard it? That's right. He, he, he must have been the one to have, to have brought it up. Even though it's been some five to six years since Paul has last ministered in person to the Ephesian church. By the way, he served there for two to three years when he was there. Um, surely even though it's been some time, they hadn't forgotten all that he had taught them. 
So the point is that they should know better. They should already know better. By, by, before he says anything else, they should already know better than to function with any kind of racial animosity in that church. So by the time he writes the letter, he's reminding them of something that he's already taught them before. But there's going to be a little bit more than that. There's no doubt in my mind that since Paul left behind a serious leadership structure, he left behind the Ephesian elders, we've run into them before, there's no doubt in my mind at all that the Ephesian elders hadn't reinforced this to let them know that the Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. And so there was no excuse for a lack of unity. Paul began by writing of the administration of God's grace or the stewardship that was given to him and concluded, concludes in verse 13 by asking them not to be discouraged over his imprisonment. Now the word translated in the New American Standard, stewardship, some of your Bibles might have the word administration. Other Bibles, if you have a King James or New King James, it very likely says dispensation. That's the Greek term, the Greek term oikonomia. And it does mean something along the lines of stewardship or a trust that is to be dispensed. A trust that is to be dispensed. It's the same word, again, that's translated dispensation in the, in the King James. But it probably, as much as I like the word dispensation, it probably is better rendered stewardship or administration here. Because the, the emphasis here seems to be on an office or a responsibility more than, or even more than, the function of dispensing the information about grace. To put it another way, the Ephesians had heard of Paul's function, or Paul's office, as an administrator. Paul was to administer God's grace, which was given to him. And then he'll elaborate on that in verses 3 through 6. I want to note now, we'll note it again in just a moment, but it's not as though Paul is the only one that got this information. It's, it's, if that was the case, we might be a little nervous about it. But Paul is not the only one to whom this information was given. But Paul had a special task of being the primary individual that was going to disseminate the information. It looks very much like all the apostles received this revelation at one time or another. But Paul is going to be the primary disseminator of this great truth that starts with grace. Now, there's going to be something about the mystery, too, but first he begins with grace. Grace, oh, grace is, is one of the most tender and wonderful topics in all the Bible. Sometimes people say that the Old Testament was a, it was a time of law and rules and regulation, and the New Testament is a period of grace. Actually, that's not as true as a lot of people think. Because if there wasn't grace in the Old Testament, there would have been nobody ever saved. And if you think that there's not law in the New Testament, you're badly mistaken. You've never read it. There's not the Mosaic Law with a capital L, but certainly there are rules and regulations and commands in the New Testament. The last half of, of the, the letter to the Ephesians is going to be full of commands. Uh, Colossians chapter Chapters 3 and 4, full of commands. Romans chapters 12 through 15, full of commands. So, of course, there is law, there's, there's order, there are commandments in the New Testament, and there's grace in the New Testament. There is law in the Old Testament, to be sure, but there's also grace in the New Testament. 
The Hebrew word hesed is one of the most important words in Hebrew Bible, which is roughly translated grace, mercy, loving kindness, something along those lines. So the grace is an enormously important topic. Now, I've said before, and it bears repeating now, we'll never fully appreciate grace until we realize from whence we've come. You know, I wonder sometimes if that's why people who are saved a little later in life, I wasn't, I was saved by about seven years old. I really don't remember a time when I wasn't a believer in the Lord Jesus. But sometimes you run into people that are saved a little later in life, and these people just just start, it's an atomic explosion for them. You talk about being on fire for the Lord, that phrase doesn't cover it. And, and they are so grateful for God's grace, because I think they have a better appreciation sometimes of what almost happened to them. If they'd have kept going down that road, what almost happened to them. And, and God just uses these people in an utterly fantastic way. Sometimes people who are believers and have been believers a long time don't particularly care for these folks too much. Uh, but they, we ought to. We ought to be just thrilled when someone turns it around. Same way within the Christian community. Sometimes we have people that fall flat on their face. And it, it happens. And a lot of times, as much as I hate to say it, a lot of times other believers who haven't fallen flat on their face would secretly, privately like to see that person stay down flat on their face because they figure you got it coming to you. And you did something that I didn't do, so while I would never say it in a Sunday school class, I would never say it on a Wednesday night, never say it on a Sunday morning, heaven forbid I wouldn't say it on a Sunday morning, but I privately kind of hope God keeps them down there for a while and just kind of, just kind of rubs their nose in it just a little bit. Not forever, but just for a little while. And you know how? You know what? That's wrong. Big time. Because when we fail, we want to be able to confess that, repent, and get right back up and move on. So why don't we want that for other people? But a lot of times when you see people that have had failures in life, as Christians, and they, they recover from that, they confess it, they repent, they move on, these people sometimes are the most dedicated believers on the planet. Because, again, they know from whence they came. So in terms of keeping people down, let's, uh, that's God's responsibility. Now, sometimes it's delegated to, to people who are in leadership, and I pray for you if you're in that position, because it's not an easy thing to have to be one of the ones that has to administer uh, any kind of punishment. But, but the, my point is, when people have, become, when people have come face-to-face -face with sin and failure, oftentimes they appreciate the grace and mercy of God more than anybody else. And you know what? That makes them some of the most relaxed people in Christianity, too. Some of the most uptight people in Christianity are some of the people that have never failed, or at least they don't think they've ever failed. Do you hear that last part? At least they don't think they've ever failed. And sometimes they can be unbearably uptight. So we probably ought to relax a little bit. And this is not, please, this is not an excuse for you to go out and get acquainted with sin. That's not the point. But the point is, the point is, we need, to, we need to realize the sinfulness of sin so that we can, we can also appreciate the enormity of God's grace. And we don't have to experience, I'm not advocating experience the sinfulness, and don't misapply what I just said, but we at least need to come face to face with it. So should we discuss sin in our churches? Absolutely. That's one of the biggest problems in some of the inch deep, mile wide aspect of Christianity today. They refuse to discuss sin because it's negative. Well, of course it's negative. But how are you going to appreciate the positive of grace until you come face to face with just how bad sin is and how bad we were. We were enemies of God before we came to Christ. 
And we need to come to that realization. Now, we don't need to dwell on it. Once we realize that, and we can, once we can appreciate grace, then we should dwell on the grace. We don't need to keep looking in the rearview mirror all of our life. We'll crash if we do that. We need to look forward. But it doesn't hurt every now and then to just kind of glance back there and say, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go back that direction. Okay. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. I like that because it, it uses the, the letters and helps me to remember it. Sometimes people like to define grace as unmerited favor. There's a hyper-technical definition of grace, if you prefer, and that's that all that God is free to do for you on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross, whatever you prefer, but it is unmerited. We don't deserve grace. Deserve and grace don't belong in the same phrase. Undeserved with grace belongs together. So, if indeed, and you have, heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, they've heard of it in his previous visits. They've also read of it already in chapters 1 and 2. But they knew Paul, and they had already heard of it. Now in verses 3 through 5, when and to whom this whole thing was revealed. Verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Here's that word, as I wrote before in brief. Now before we get to the mystery, let me cover that phrase, as I wrote before in brief. He hasn't written to the Ephesians. This is his first letter to them. The one, certainly the only one that we know of. When he's talking about, as I wrote before in brief, He's already alluded to the idea of the mystery that he'll define now. He's already alluded to the concept in chapter 2. That's what he means by, as he has already written in brief. But what, what does he mean here? That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. This is not the mystery of Agatha Christie. This is the Greek term mysterion, M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. You see the Greek letters in yellow, the English letters in White and the definition in green, at least a simple definition. The mystery that Paul's referring to here, the Greek term mysterion, and you can see the English word mystery there, can't you? Mysterion, you can almost hear it. You just turn the, turn the U into a Y, and it's basically the English word. This is a truth previously unknown. Now, you can see whether you might could extrapolate that into a Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie thing, because they're, they're discovering something that was true that wasn't. I know, but this is, not a, this is not a thriller. This is not that kind of thing. A truth that was previously unknown. Now, it will be defined what the mystery is. What the truth is that was previously unknown won't be defined until verse 6. So if you hadn't paid attention and read ahead, don't read ahead right now. Let's go. We, we will leave a little suspense as to what it might be just to keep you awake for just a little while longer. Verse 3, how it was revealed, it was revealed by revelation. The mystery discourse was given to Paul by revelation, and it's a fact about which he had already written briefly, not in another epistle, but in this one, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul received this by direct revelation from God. In other words, Paul received the truth of this mystery, watch, not... Not from a diligent search of the Old Testament scriptures. He received it by revelation. He didn't receive this information from a diligent use of reason or logic. But he received it by direct divine disclosure. Now this is actually more important than it sounds like on the surface. He didn't go through the Old Testament and deduce this mystery which is going to be revealed in verse 6. You can't help yourself from looking down at verse 6, can you? He, he, he's, he will 
he didn't get all that from the Old Testament. Some people think that he did, but that's not revealed in the Old Testament. Let me tell you what the mystery is not. The mystery is not that the gospel would come to the Gentiles. That was revealed in the Old Testament. That was, that was one of the ways the Jews failed. Paul brings that out in the first part of the book of Romans. When he condemns them, when he says they need a Savior, not only did you have the oracles of God, but you didn't live them and you didn't proclaim them. Remember that? They had a responsibility to tell everyone about Yahweh, but they didn't do it. They kept it to themselves. They were very selfish about the information. Very, very selfish about the information. And, and sometimes Christians are that way as well, aren't we? You know, on the Titanic, I don't know how many people, 1,500 died, something like that. You know the reason why a lot of people on the Titanic died? Have you ever heard of that? The reason? Because the, the lifeboats were half empty. Most of the lifeboats were half empty. People got in the lifeboats. They got so scared, they rowed away from the ship because they thought they'd all drown. Only a couple of lifeboats even went back, even though there was plenty of room on the lifeboats. Uh, just a couple went back to try to rescue some more people because some of the people in the lifeboats, they were, well, they were half empty, half full, rather. They felt like if they went back, too many people tried to jump in the boat and everybody died. So they didn't want to go back. So you know what? They were more than happy. They were more than happy to be rescued themselves. But they didn't want to go back and rescue anybody else. They kept it a secret. And this, this incredible blessing of having a lifeboat to rescue they wanted it for themselves, but they didn't want to go back. And so many Christians were that way, too. The Jews were that way in the Old Testament. That's kind of sad, isn't it? The, the, the Jews had the words of life, and they discussed it among themselves. We have the words of life, too. And we discuss it among ourselves a lot. And that's fine. But if we don't discuss it with other people, we're just like those people in the Titanic that are rolling away in a rowboat that's only half full. You need to go back. Take the risk. Take the emotional risk and go back and talk to somebody else about it. And that's what the Jews didn't do. So, you're, so the idea that the Gentiles would be offered salvation, that was not unique. That's not the mystery. That's not the mystery. That could have been discerned from the Old Testament. What Paul's saying is that this isn't found anywhere in the Old Testament. That's what makes it a mystery, you see. That's what makes it a truth previously unknown. If they knew about it in the Old Testament, it wouldn't be... Paul wouldn't have used this term. They didn't know about this. What they didn't know about, let me go ahead and tell you because I know you're dying to know. It's that the Jews and the Gentiles would be equal members in the body of Christ, at least to summarize. Now, I'll get to it again in a minute. So it wasn't that they would be saved. It's that the Jews and Gentiles would be equal members of the body of Christ. The mystery mentioned in Ephesians was hidden in God in ages past. It was something that could not be understood by human ingenuity or human study. Then in verse 4, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, we have this idea, mystery. The Ephesian Christians would be able to understand his insight into the mystery of Christ by reading what he'd already written. Remember, in, in chapter 2, he's already laid out this idea when we get to verse 6, it's not going to be a shock to us. We're already going to know that Jews and Gentiles are equal members of the body of Christ. We already know that because we've read chapter 2. And that's what Paul's referring to here. In fact, he does write of this again in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, which we'll study on another occasion. This is a parallel passage. has a little different emphasis, but it's the same message, basic message. But Colossians has a more Christological <coughs> emphasis. Ephesians has a more ecclesiological emphasis. But that will have to be a study 
for another day. So the ability to understand the mystery is what Paul is referring to in verse 4, and they can understand it by having read what he's already written. Ever wonder why it's so important to start at chapter 1 and work your way through? So many times in Bible study, we don't do that. You know, we break into a Bible study because somebody's talking about it on the radio or television, and we break right into the middle of a book, and that's not the way these were ever designed to be studied. That's why as, as tempted as, as we get sometimes to do strictly topical studies, you know, to hit some serious issue of the day, I really believe that it's in your best interest that we go cover to cover because that way over the course of at least this ministry, um, if you stick with it long enough, we'll cover the entirety of God's self-disclosure and not just cherry pick. So this is an interesting and important topic. Then in verse 5, when was this mystery disclosed? Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Did you see that? Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. The reason I keep stressing this, there are some people that would deny this. There are some people that don't see a distinction between Israel and the church. And that's just not a Pauline idea. Paul certainly sees the distinction. This is a unique time that we live in. A lot of things make it unique. But Paul says that, that this particular truth, that the Jews and Gentiles are equal members of the body of Christ, this is something new. can't be obtained by reason. can't be obtained by a thorough and diligent search of the Old Testament. Can't be, it can't be attained by a logical, uh, ra- logical rationality. It can't be attained by ingenuity. It's something that came by uh, revelation. So, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to, now watch, his holy apostles and prophets in or by means of the Spirit. That's why I said a moment ago, Paul was maybe the primary individual who was given the responsibility of disseminating this information, but he's not the only one that knew it. And again, that makes me feel more comfortable, because if you've got a guy that says, you know, I'm the only one on the planet that's ever thought of this. Lewis Perry Schaefer put it this way. Lewis Perry Schaefer said, listen, if, if you look at a passage and you come up with a conclusion that no one else has ever come up with, never, in the whole history of the church, he said, it doesn't mean that you're wrong. But it means you're probably wrong. <laughs> and he said, you need to go back and check it again. Now, if you check it again and, and you're convinced, then go ahead, just run with it. But just realize that, that what you're saying is, that at least to your knowledge, the Holy Spirit has not worked in the life of anybody for the last 2,000 years to help them understand this truth. And that's pretty darned unlikely, if I can say darned, on a tape. If not, just we'll cut that one out. But it's, it's, it's significantly unlikely that God works that way. So here we see Paul is saying, I'm not the only one that knows this. That God did put me, seemed to put me in charge of telling you about it, and it's probably because of Paul's special ministry to the Gentiles. Peter had a special ministry of Jew, but, but what he's saying is, Peter knows about this too. John knows about this too. All the apostles know about this. But I'm the one that was given the responsibility to teach it. Verse 5 explicitly says that, not just implicitly, but explicitly says that it was revealed also to his holy apostles and prophets by means of the Holy Spirit. We, we spoke of it before, only briefly, but let me do it again briefly. The prophets there... Prophet was a special office that I, I believe was in effect until the completion and dissemination, the completion and dissemination of the New Testament. 
So I'm not, I'm not saying that the office of prophet stopped immediately on the day that Paul, or rather that John finished pinning the book of Revelation, but as soon as this, this was put together and disseminated, the office of prophet faded out, and that office was replaced by the function and office of pastor and teacher. So it was revealed not only to the apostles, but to those who had a teaching ministry in the, in the apostolic age. Now, the, now that what you've all been waiting for, the content of the mystery. Well, I've got, uh, I've got kind of disappointing news for you. You already know it. Because Paul has already gone over it, but now he formalizes it. Now, the first three words of the New American Standard, to be specific, uh, if, in my Bible, that's in italics. And if you have a, a New American Standard, it should be in italics in your Bible as well. But you know what? Just because something is in italics doesn't make it heretical. Sometimes... A, a phrase like that is, is extremely appropriate in the translation. I'll never forget when I was doing my uh, classical Greek studies. I did classical Greek studies before I went to seminary because classical Greek is the mother language of Koine Greek, and I never wanted to be intimidated by the Koine Greek, so I went, I went back and, and did classical studies and read uh, Plato and Sophocles and, and uh, Thucydides and, and people like that just so I could get a good understanding of that language. My professor... Was a, was a dear, sweet, incredible uh, lady by the name of Dora Potsi. Uh, Dora, at the time, was not a believer in the Lord Jesus. I'm, I'm just in prayer that she uh, did. Uh, if she's still alive, I'm not sure, but I'm, I pray that she will be before she goes to be with the Lord. Uh, before she goes, uh, I hope she will go to be with the Lord. But she, she just performed an incredible function for me and, and gave me a real solid uh, background in the, in the Greek language. And one of the things that she taught me that I haven't forgotten, even when I do translation of New Testament material, is that a woodenly, literal, stilted translation is not necessarily the best one. The best translation is, is, is a translation that gets the idea from this language into this language. That's the best translation. So sometimes when we see a, a phrase like to be specific, it may not be, there may not be Greek words that say that, but it's legitimate to put it in there. These, the writers were not heretical. The translators weren't heretical for putting that in there. There's something in that sentence that leads them to say that would help be very helpful in getting the idea from this language into this one. Do you see that? So, so just because you see something in italics, don't immediately think these translators didn't know what they were doing. Uh, they, they most likely very well did. To be specific, now he's going to tell us what the primary aspects are to this mystery. Or at least he's going to formalize it. And nothing that's on this board right now is, should come as a surprise to you because he's already gone over it all in chapter 2. There are three. <clears throat> the content of this mystery is threefold. That the, Gentiles, <clears throat> that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that the Gentiles are fellow members of the body, and that the Gentiles are fellow participants in the, of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They are fellow heirs fellow members of the body, and fellow participants of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This should not be understood, or misunderstood, to mean that the Gentiles have replaced the Jews. This doesn't mean that the Gentiles have replaced the Jews, or that the church has become the recipient of the promises that were given specifically to Abraham. No, that's not what this means at all. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, which means in the sphere of the body of Christ, 
Jews and Gentiles are joint heirs. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul will put it this way, in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile. No slave or free, there's no male or female. There are no racial distinctions, there are no gender distinctions, and there are no economic distinctions in the body of Christ. We're all equal members. So here he says we're fellow heirs. And that makes sense of some of Paul's previous comments. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 14, he says both groups have been made into one. In 2.19, he says we're fellow citizens. In 2.20, he says we've all, we all have the same foundation. And in 2.21, he says we've been fitted together. You see how nothing here is going to be new. He just gets specific with the content now. He's given us it all in paragraph form. Now he's going to give it to us all in like a point outline. Both groups have been made into one. We're fellow citizens. We have the same foundation. We've been fitted together. In view of this, then it logically flows that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs. Again, not of the promises that were given specifically to Abram, Abraham, but to all the combined blessing that is to come to the church. We, we as I'm a Gentile believer, as far as I know, you know, I'm a Gentile believer. I have every bit as much of an inheritance in this body of Christ as my Jewish friends who have become believers in the Lord Jesus. Nobody has any racial superiority. I can't help myself because remember what Paul's doing? He's laying down an argument for unity in the church. If nobody has a position of spiritual, superiority because of our race, if nobody's got a position of superiority because of our gender, and if nobody has a position of superiority because of our bank accounts, then that's a pretty strong reason that there ought to be unity in the church. Nobody should be looking their nose down upon someone else. But boy, hasn't that happened in the last 2,000 years. Big time. Big time. The Jews and Gentiles are fellow members of the body. The, in, in chapter 2.15, again, the two have become one. The Gentiles are fellow participants also in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Remember the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? That seed of the woman that was promised came through the line of Abram, the line of Abraham, which brought blessing to the whole world. So in this sense, the church shares in the blessing of Abraham, but the promise that was made to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, that was obviously given to and fulfilled in Abraham. But yes, we share in that aspect of the blessing because that aspect of the blessing has, relates to the gospel. And oh, by the way, that's what Paul says here. We're fellow participants of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So yes, in that aspect, we share, but Abram is still the recipient of that promise. Now, nobody really disputes that. But where people have a dispute is, or is the church now the recipient of the land aspect of that promise? Let me just say this. There is no indication. There is no indication, at least not with a normal, literal, grammatical, historical, when a normal, literal, grammatical, historical method is applied, or what Charles Ryrie said, said, if we look at Scripture with regard to its plain sense, there's no indication in the New Testament that the land promises that were given to Israel have now become the church's possession, meaning... Yes, there is a future for Israel. So in conclusion, the mystery is not that the Gentiles would be saved. Paul could have easily gotten that by a careful reading of the Old Testament. Easily gotten that. The Old Testament gives ample, 
ample indication that the Gentiles would receive salvation. Matter of fact, that was part of the Jews' responsibility, was to preach the word to the Gentiles. But the mystery that is being spoken of here is that believing, believing Jews and Gentiles are together in Christ. Remember that technical term? Jews and Gentiles are together in Christ. The technical term for the church or the body of Christ. The only way that this information can be attained is through the gospel. The good news concerning the effect of Christ's death on all human beings. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are all one in this body. We thank you for this mystery that has been revealed by means of your servant Paul, but that was taught apparently to all the apostles and even many of the prophets of the day. We thank you that it's now been taught to us. And now through your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would do something with it. That we would, we would exercise a sense of unity within our own local church, and then that we would exercise that same sense of unity without compromising biblical truth, but that we would exercise that same sense of unity in the universal church with our brothers and sisters and other churches, not only in this city and this country, but all around the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.